Assalamu alaikum warahmatullah. This is Abdurrahman, and you're listening to the Heartwork series on the Qalam podcast. Heartwork is a weekly session at the Ruth Community Space in Dallas, Texas, where young professionals come together and discuss ideas and concepts on how to grow in their religious practice and their relationship with Allah. This particular series is called The Messenger, where the focus of the discussions will be on lessons from the life of the Prophet Muhammad wasallam. If you enjoy and appreciate these sessions and these series, then please consider becoming a sustainer of the Roots community space by going to rootsdfw.org sustain. We really appreciate your contribution. We appreciate your prayers. And we appreciate you listening to the programming that we put out. Jazakumullah khairan. Wassalamu alaikum warahmatullah. All right. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Bismillah alhamdulillah wa salatu wassalamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa ashabi ajma'in. Welcome everybody. Welcome back to our continuation. And uh, as we near, subhanAllah, the conclusion of the life of the Prophet Muhammad uh, for our weekly study here, hard work for young professionals. Um, I hope everybody, inshallah, is doing well and I hope you guys enjoyed a little bit of a break uh, last week, much needed just to kind of recharge. Um, and inshallah, again, I, I, I don't mean to sound like a broken record, but I hope everybody is doing their best to stay safe, inshallah, and make good choices, good decisions, um, inshallah, inshallah. Before, uh, as we await the solution that Allah Ta'ala will provide for us by means of who knows, Allah knows best. Okay, um, tonight we're going to be talking about uh, one of the great moments uh, and one of the unique moments in the life of the Prophet Muhammad um, Something that only happened in his life one time, uh, despite the opportunity that many people here may have, or you might know people who have had the opportunity to do this multiple times. Uh, but this was something the Prophet only had access to or the opportunity to do once, and that was uh, what's known as Hajjat al-Wada, the farewell pilgrimage, his final and his only Hajj. Um, but before we get into that, talking about the Prophet Muhammad's Hajj, in which he addressed, you know, 200 plus thousand people during his uh, sermon at Arafah, his, his khutbah at Arafah, there's an important story that's given about one of the closest companions to the Prophet Muhammad somebody that was very close to him. Uh, in fact, it's one of the only companions where we have like a direct hadith uh, where the Prophet Muhammad seemingly unprompted with no, uh, with no reason that sort of brought it on. He tells this companion with no conditions that he loves him. I love you. He says, Oh Mu'ad, I love you. And some of the other companions that were there to witness that expression of love, they were actually jealous. Like, what was it that made Mu'ad so special? You know, if you if you saw somebody that you admired and loved, and they showed love and affection towards somebody, naturally you would kind of feel like, man, what what's so unique about that person? Um, but in the commentary and in knowing who Mu'ad ibn Jabal was, we find out very quickly that one of the reasons why the Prophet Muhammad loved him so much uh, was because of his level of dedication to learning, something that he was so connected to. You know, he never let a day go by in his life uh, after he, you know, obviously accepted Islam, uh, unless he knew and studied and spent time with the Prophet Muhammad Some of the companions said that there was no one who was like a better student of the Prophet Muhammad than Mu'adh. And so we see here this very interesting relationship between how do I know 
when the Prophet Muhammad when I meet him, right? And this is something that, by the way, in this world of materialism, I don't just mean like materialist consumption. I'm talking about the philosophy of materialism where we tend to forget about things unless they're tangible, right? Like we forget about things that, that, that are meta or that don't exist in the physical space that we do. So, you know, things that we can't touch or can't experience, we tend to ignore those things. But you should think about, and I should think about often, like, what's my conversation with the Prophet Muhammad going to be like when I meet him? What are we going to talk about? You know, as I walk up to him in paradise and I see his smiling face, like, is he going to recognize me as somebody that he loves and that he appreciates and that he wants to tell me how proud of me he is or he was, right? Because the Prophet Muhammad gets updates from the angels, from the Mala'ika on the status of the Ummah. So one of the things that we learned from this story of him just telling Mu'ad in Yuhibbuk is that Mu'adh, his dedication to the to learning Islam translated into the Prophet Muhammad loving him. You know, it's like imagine sitting there talking to somebody, and while you're talking to them, they're just on their phone the whole time. They don't even make eye contact with you. It's gonna be very difficult for you to, and I don't mean for people to look at their friends or spouses when they're ill. You know? He knows. No, no. <laughs> you know, it's normal. Like we live in a, we live in a, in a world right now, unfortunately, where I mean, I'll tell you straight up, when I'm putting Musa to bed. Man, this this sucks, man. SubhanAllah, there's so much pressure when you're a parent. Make God for me, guys. You wonder, man. You think about things a thousand times over and over and over again. Um, so I'll put Musa to sleep at night. And meanwhile, I have like a billion DMs from people asking if no polish is halal and can I get married to this person and what about this? And and I'm trying to answer because if I don't answer it, then everyone's like, cancel Abdul Rahman Murphy. He's a jerk. He doesn't answer my DMs. I'm going to wear nail polish anyways. It's just like, you know, I can't win, right? And then so I'm trying to like find time being like a husband and a father and a son and a son-in-law. And I, by the way, I also want to like not die from obesity at age 36, you know, maybe work out once in a while, I'm trying to find time to like respond to people's questions and texts and things like that. And uh, yes, I'm trying to guilt you if you were here and you've, and you've made me feel bad. And I'm there with my son and he's kind of dozing off to sleep, you know, silently. You start to feel his, his breathing getting heavier. You know, when you're about to fall asleep, you just kind of, you get that ugly mouth open look, you're like, right? And so I'm like, okay, he's going to sleep. So I pull my phone out, because I put him to bed every night. So I pull my phone out, and I quickly start to like respond to people's messages. And I hear, Baba, put your phone down, it's not screen time. Because that's what we tell him, right? With like the iPad or something. And subhanAllah, man, it's crazy. Like, even in a moment where we're not necessarily talking, we've already did our Quran, we've already did our du'as, we've already did all that, we caught up on the day. Even in a moment when Musa and I are not talking, like he still wants to know that I'm present. He still wants to know that I'm there, right? Are you focusing on me or are you focusing? And those are some of the sweetest moments, man. SubhanAllah, like just kind of like laying there in silence with him as he falls asleep, you know? And so the point being is that when you love somebody, your attention to them is never diverted. When you love somebody, even when they, what, what, what's one of the, the archetypal sort of like cliches of like a love story is that, you know, the person who's in love stares at the person. They can't, they catch themselves staring, right? How many of us have ever caught ourselves thinking about the Prophet Muhammad on Black Friday or Cyber Monday or whatever it is now? And and, and we, we go to sleep at night wondering what's tomorrow's hard work lesson gonna be about. I'm not trying to guilt you, like I'm, I'm nothing special, but Sunday night, are we excited to learn more about him? And if you are, that's good, but imagine that level of emotional attachment. That's why Mu'adh earned that status. That's why he got it. 
because he was so dedicated to the Prophet Muhammad. So this is like that moment for us to check ourselves. What have I done special, unique, that the Prophet on the Day of Judgment is going to recognize me? He's going to say, you're the one. You know, I have, I have a teacher. He named his son Muhammad because he said on the Day of Judgment, I want to tell the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, I'm not perfect, I made mistakes, but I named my son after you because I loved you so much. Like, what's that one thing that you're going to have that on the Day of Judgment you can approach the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and tell him, Ya Rasulullah, I gave charity because I read a narration about you and how you taught us to do this, or I did this, or I read a story about how you were so forgiving and it made me cry. Like, you tell him this. Imagine sharing that with him. So he told Mu'ad this in part because of Mu'ad's status and his connection to the Prophet Sallallahu And one thing that you learn is that because of this dedication, he was given leadership. Mu'adh was not chosen as a leader because of any other reason besides he was somebody that was super intelligent and he really took the methodology of the Prophet Muhammad It wasn't just raw info. You know, he was like a mentee. He was like an apprentice, an understudy. And so Yemen, there was a, a tribe or a couple of tribes in Yemen that had accepted Islam and they needed an imam. They needed a teacher. So the Prophet decided to send Mu'adh ibn Jabal and Abu Musa al-Ash'ari. He decided to send two people. And really, Mu'adh was like that person that he was banking on to be their teacher. And there's two conversations that he had with Mu'adh that are amazing. I hope they'll, they'll impress you because they impressed me. When the Prophet Muhammad when he's talking to Mu'adh and he's trying to tell him, he's trying to teach him how to teach. And he says to him, Bima taqtiya Mu'adh. How are you going to judge? Judge is the literal term, but how are you going to like, you know, answer people when they come to you and they say, you know, this is a question that I have or this is an issue that I have. What are you going to use? What are you going to use to answer people's questions? To rule? You're the judge. You're the qadi. How are you going to do it? So Mu'ad, he responds and he says, I'm going to use whatever I find in the book of Allah and the Quran. Right? Which is a good answer. It's a safe answer. It's a Sunday school answer, right? What are you going to, you know, how are you going to make this choice? Uh, whatever Allah says, I'll do. Then the Prophet says something that's shocking. And I want you guys to listen to this because the common uh, rhetoric that comes from whether it's like Orientalists or whether it's like, um, you know, hyper secularists that want to deconstruct religious uh, philosophy is that religion can't actually provide answers. You know, religion's outdated, it's archaic, it's traditional, it's not progressive, it doesn't match with the times. How are you going to be able to live your life in 2020 if the Qur'an was revealed 1400 years ago? Like, does the Qur'an talk about how to deal with Netflix? Does it talk about how to deal with stock options and bonds? And like, how do we know, right? And, 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 and then on, on the other extreme, you have somebody who might get on the member and they might say very passionately because of their dedication to Islam, the Quran is the answer for everything. For everything. And then you have people in the audience sitting there, myself included, when I was growing up, like, really? I don't like I don't know. Like I like this girl in school. Like, how is it supposed to answer that for me? Like, you know, although it does actually answer that one. But there are other issues, right? So the Prophet he says, Wa in lam tajid, fa in lam tajid. What if you don't find your answer there? Man, that statement sounds like blasphemous. Imagine being in a Sunday school class and the teacher's like, you know, where are you, how are you going to, how are you going to find guidance in life? And you're like the Quran, some kids like the Quran. You're like, what if you don't find it in the Quran? The teacher's going to be like, we have our first kafir in the class. 
If, if you said that, no, seriously, it's like a very like unsettling statement. What if you don't find it there? So then he says what? He says, Then I'm going to ex, you know, expand my search, right? Go to the settings and expand it to whatever's in the sunnah of his messenger. And this is a very interesting point because there are many people that try to, for whatever reason, you know, educationally, intellectually, you know, put out there that the sunnah or the hadith or the whatever you want to call it is not actually a viable source of religious guidance. That it has to be in the Quran or nothing else. Right? Don't tell me about the hadith. I don't want to hear about that. Tell me where is it in the Quran. But here you have the Prophet and his one of his greatest students saying that if you don't find something specifically written out for you in the Quran, which scholars of Quran say the Quran is not a book of specifics. It's a book of generalities. And what makes it specific is the sunnah. The sunnah gives you the walking example. Aisha radiallahu anha, the wife of the Prophet said he's a walking Quran. If you want to see what the Quran means about something, you look at the Prophet you look at his life. So many questions the Quran doesn't answer. What time do we pray? Like, how do you pray Maghrib? Why are the why are the rak'ah different? How do you perform Hajj? Hajj, like you're not if you look in the Quran for the rights of Hajj, you're gonna find very, very minimal things. Okay, certain rulings on fasting and things like that, you're not going to find. So he says, I'm going to look at whatever the life of the Prophet has. At that point, you're like, okay, Quran, Sunnah sounds good, Islam. What does the Prophet say? Again, shocking. What if you don't find it there? That's amazing. When I read this, I was like, subhanAllah, how, what a genius the Prophet was. How smart was he? Even though he was sending Mu'adh to another people in that time, he knew that Yemen is different than Medina. You might go there and find something that may not be here. And you might have to, what are you going to do? How are you going to answer? If, if Islam is truly for everyone at all times, how are you going to respond? So then what does he say? He says, I'm going to work hard and try to come up with an answer based on those two sources. I'm going to use my intellect. When he says this, the Prophet ﷺ, he says, Alhamdulillah, وَفَقَ رَسُولَ رَسُولِ Praise be to Allah, the one who guided the messenger of the messenger of Allah. Meaning what? You got it right. You nailed it. That's exactly what I wanted you to do in that order. And this is why when it comes to trying to figure out something in life as young professionals, the permissibility of something, sometimes we dog on people like, Someone's wondering, is this halal? Is it halal to eat this? And you're like, man, just say bismillah. Or like, don't find out after we ate it. You know, like, let's eat it and then we'll do the research, you know? But there is a system that the Prophet ﷺ built in place that he gave to his companions and he made sure that they were aware that this is not just some cultural religion. There's actually a robust academic process in order for somebody to know what they don't know. If there's a question that comes up, how do I handle zakat on my assets, on my property, on my jewelry, on my... Th this is a question that like, you're like, wow, how do... So there's a methodology to follow it. And the Prophet ﷺ made sure that if you're going to be a leader of a tribe, a religious scholar, you have to know. You can't just go there and, and beat people to death over the head with fear Allah, fear Allah. It doesn't work like that, right? And so he sends Mu'adh. And then at the end of this conversation where he tells Mu'ad this, because the Prophet ﷺ and Mu'ad, they used to take walks together, and this walk was one day, it was kind of getting long, 
and he tells Mu'adh, he says, Ya Mu'adh, he was so happy with him, and he tells him that you might not see me after this year. You might come back to Medina after this year, and you might come to my masjid, right, the masjid of the Prophet and he says, next to that masjid, you might see my grave. He's telling him, he's foreshadowing his own passing, his own death. And Mu'adh starts to cry, he starts to weep. Because, man, this is like his, his best friend. This is like his, his, his role model, his teacher, his companion, all wrapped into one. Imagine somebody that you're so close to, and they tell you, like, I'm moving. It's traumatic. It's traumatic. And so he says, like, I might, be, I might not be here anymore. I might be gone. I might be buried in the ground by the time you come back. And Mu'adh starts crying, and the Prophet ﷺ, he says, don't cry, Mu'adh, don't weep. He says, because those closest to me are the ones that are most remembering of Allah, wherever they are. SubhanAllah. Gets me every time, dude. How how far do you feel from the Prophet? Like how far? We're in Dallas, Texas, man. Like you sometimes you wonder, and if anyone here has ever been on Hajar Umrah and you go there and you feel like this 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 version of yourself that's so much more pure, so much better than the version you are here. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just kind of buckle in and hang on for the ride, right? So when you go to Mecca and to Medina, you discover like the best version of yourself. The person who wakes up for Fajr with no alarm. The person who's who's excited to go to prayer. They're like, you want to go shopping? I'm like, no, Dhuhr first. Everyone's like, well, you haven't prayed Dhuhr in three years. You're like, it doesn't matter. I'm here now, right? It's, it's remarkable. It's remarkable. It's a life-changing experience. And subhanAllah, when you leave, it's the most heartbreaking experience. Because why? Because you don't want to leave. I remember sitting in a tent in the middle of the desert with this multimillionaire from Newport Beach, California, or is it Laguna? I forget. He, he was like Kobe's neighbor. He used to live in Kobe's neighborhood. He's like, we used to see Kobe's family. Super wealthy, like insanely wealthy. And uh, the reason I knew he was wealthy is because I saw his car keys. I don't know why he brought his car keys with him to Hajj. Like, what are you going to do with them? Uh, I don't know. And we're leaving Minna. Minna is, I, I don't know how to explain to you what Minna is, but it's basically, imagine this room, this size, okay? But now imagine 800 people in here. And imagine you have to live there for like four days. Again, it sounds really miserable, but it's actually very incredible. And you become so close. Physically, you become close, but also emotionally. You become so close with the people there. And we're leaving. We're leaving. We're about to go check in from there to our hotel. You get your own bathroom. You don't have to share a bathroom with 150 people anymore. Right? When you go to the bathroom, you walk in and you're not sure what the moisture is. You just say bismillah and go for it. You're like, I don't know what that is, but I pray that Allah is going to protect me now. You know? There's a there, <laughs> true story. One time, um, so what they do in the heat is they have these misters. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like they have these water lines that they poke holes in and they just shoot mist out, right? I don't know if you guys have seen these, but they basically, and sometimes they'll put fans in front of them. So basically they'll kind of like disperse this moisture in the air because the, the desert sun is just hot and it's dry. So even some water with a nice little breeze will kind of cool you off a little bit. So they have these misters that are going throughout the tents in Minna. And every so often they turn it on and it just shoots this nice breeze, this spray, and people walk out and they just kind of, you know, wipe their face with it. It's kind of refreshing, right? And then one day, one of the brothers, we were there and I was like, what? I wonder what the water source for that is. Like, I wonder what the water source is. We're all drinking bottled water. Like, no one's drinking tap water. No one wants to lose weight that fast, you know, drink tap water there. 
And then we go looking for it and we find that it's just like in this bucket. And Allah knows best what's in that bucket. They must have read Surah, you know, Surah Al-Baqarah on that bucket to make sure that it was protected. Because who knows what kind of water was in there. But SubhanAllah, like that's where you were. And then I stumble upon this guy in an empty tent by himself. Everyone's taking their luggage. And he's sitting there, he's crying, man. He's crying like a baby. He's like in his 50s. Most accomplished person probably that he ever thought. He's crying. I said, Wait, what's wrong? Why? What, are you okay? Let's go. We got to go to Medina. We got to check into our hotel. And he says, no, I don't want to leave. He says, what I've found here, I haven't found anywhere else. What if he, I'm scared. What if I leave here and I never feel this again? I was like, bro, is I, gee, I started crying. I was like, man, you and me, will stay. Let's just stay here forever. So when you leave Medina or Mecca, when you leave the Umrah experience, you actually kind of mourn that moment because you're like, what if I never am this person ever again? So imagine now Mu'adh. He's leaving Medina, and not just Medina, Medina to what? Medina to Nabi, the city of the Prophet. He's leaving, and when he comes back, he doesn't know if it's going to be the city of the Prophet in that way anymore. So he starts to mourn and cry, and the Prophet tells him, don't worry. Whoever is most conscious of Allah is the one that's closest to me. Remember that, guys. Remember that. No matter how far you feel from Allah or from his messenger, the more remembering you are of Allah, it's like you're elevating yourself to the Prophet's proximity. Even somebody who lives in Medina, who prays under the green dome every day, if you remember Allah more frequently than them, then you will have proximity to the Prophet that even that person won't have. Right? It's remarkable, subhanAllah, his story of Mu'adz. So shortly after that, the Prophet begins preparations for what will be his only hajj and his concluding hajj. The, 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 the farewell hajj as they call it. He announced, he announces to everybody that he's making hajj. He tells everybody in Medina and he also sends messengers to tell everybody through Arabia. Why do you think he does this? You guys, anyone know? Why does he tell everyone in Arabia he's making hajj? What's the purpose of this? Yeah, very good, exactly. So he can show him how to do, he can show people how to make hajj. You know, that one of the famous hadith of the Prophet, pray as you've seen me pray. That's what he said, literally. One of the best ways to learn is by watching. And so the Prophet ﷺ, you know, he tells everybody because this is the first time that he will make hajj during the hajj season, right? Visit the, the haram during hajj and make hajj the hijjah. And in his mind, he knows that this is approaching the end of his life. And so he actually says to some of his companions, he says, I don't know if I will ever make it back. He says that. So Abdul, uh, Jabir ibn Abdullah, one of the companions, he says, in Medina, after the Prophet made this announcement, over the next few weeks, over 125,000 people showed up to go from Medina and make Hajj with the Prophet 125,000 people. And then in Mecca, 125,000 more who were like, you know what, we're closer to Mecca. We'll just await his arrival. We'll just join him when he gets here. They got there. So they were like already, you know, queued up, RSVP'd, 250,000 people waiting for the Prophet Muhammad. So half a million people. And that doesn't include the people who are living in Medina, those people who are living in Mecca, some of the small tribes around those areas. So he announces this and the Prophet Muhammad, he prepares himself uh, to go for Hajj. And he tells everybody, you know, to join him and to, uh, you know, basically keep an eye on him and follow his lead. 
when the Prophet ﷺ, when they left, they stopped at a place called Dhul Hulayfa. Dhul Hulayfa is maybe like a few miles, maybe six miles outside of Medina. And the Prophet ﷺ, he prayed there, he prayed uh, two rakah, he prayed Asr, and he made his intention from Dhul Hulayfa. What's interesting about this is that even till today, out of love and reverence for the Prophet ﷺ, Hajj groups that are going from Medina to Mecca will stop at Dhul Hulayfa. It's literally called the, the Masjid of the Tree, Masjid al Shajara because there's a tree right in the middle of it, and they will stop and perform exactly the same rituals. Hajj is interesting because you actually are just following like a script. You're not really doing anything on your own. Your du'as are your own, your words are your own, but your actions, the time you leave, all of that, it's all been prescribed. You're following somebody else, whether it's Ibrahim, whether it's Hajar or whether it's the Prophet Muhammad You're following someone else's ritual. And in that way, it's kind of like the ultimate test of submission. You know, some people might say like, well, that doesn't make sense. Why would we leave then? Why not leave later? Why not miss traffic, leave earlier? But it's not about necessarily the most efficient or the most logical. It's about being able to submit to the spiritual. And so people till today stop at the Hulayfa and they pray. And when they go, they start reciting the Talbiyah, which you guys probably have heard before. لَبَّيْكَ اللَّهُمَّ لَبَّيْكَ one of the most powerful phrases in our tradition. Basically, you can translate this whole phrase to, I am here, O oh Allah, I'm at your service. I'm here, I'm at your service. There is nothing that's distracting me or worthy of worship except for you, right? That every praise and every grace belongs to you. You're the one that gave me everything. Right now, sitting here, it doesn't feel as powerful, but when you're there and you miss your bed and you miss your home and you miss your fridge and you miss your espresso machine and you miss your kids and you miss your car. Man, you know when you travel and you miss driving? Anyone even miss driving when you travel? You get home and the person picking you up from the airport, they're like, hey, so I'm like, I'm get in. You're like, no, let me get in. You get in the other side. I want to drive, right? I miss driving. You miss everything. And then you get there and you feel this tug of war in your heart, like, man, I miss everything back home. I miss everything, but I'm here for Allah. And as every time you utter these words, it's almost like you're fortifying in your heart that what? I'm here despite my love of everything back home, I love Allah more. Despite my dedication to everything back home, I, I'm dedicated to Allah more than that. And so they start to repeat this talbiyah, and you're supposed to say it over and over and over. It's beautiful. It has an amazing rhythm to it. And when you hear hundreds of thousands of millions of voices when you're there, and it just kind of echoes across the fields and valleys of people, it, I mean, in and of itself, it truly is like a National Geographic moment. It's like one of the most powerful things that a person can ever experience being part of that. And so as they did this, uh, the journey itself took several days, it took about eight or nine days to make it from Medina to Mecca. When they arrived at Mecca, they arrived on the fourth day of the Hijjah. Now, all of the process of Hajj starts on the eighth day or the, the seventh night leading into the eighth day. So it starts on the eighth day of the Hijjah. So they arrived a few days early and they set up camp outside of Mecca. And then they went in and they made their Umrah. So you start your Hajj actually by making an Umrah. Uh, you do tawaf and sa'i, so you, you circulate around the Kaaba or circumambulate, one of those words that's only Muslim, right? circumambulate, ablution, uh, I don't know what else, there's some words that are only Muslim, uh, meaning that they exist in languages but nobody else uses them. Tell your, 
tell somebody you have to go ablute and see what they say. Ask them the last time they've abluted. Um, or if you want to circumambulate instead of go running in the, in, on the trail. You want to circumambulate tomorrow morning? So you circumambulate, meaning that you go around, and then you do Safan Marwa, which is back and forth, back and forth. And th this, 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 there's this incredible moment where the Prophet Muhammad at this time realized that this place, this city, this entire environment he's in right now was, the, was a place of such difficulty and pain for the Muslims for the previous decade, if not more. And now they're there and they're in, they're in the valley where quite literally Hajar the wife of Ibrahim, where she found water in the middle of a desert. When someone says that to you in English, right? Like finding water in a desert, what are they talking about? What are they trying to communicate? Oh, this man, it's like finding water in a desert. What are they trying to tell you? How what? How hard it is or how miraculous it was, if it's after the fact, right? Man, did you find it? Did you find, you know, whatever you're looking for? Oh, man, it was like finding water in a desert, but I got it. You know, it's like a miracle. And literally, you're talking about a person who found water in a desert, subhanAllah. No one would ever assume, if you're running in the middle of the desert and you're thirsty, no one would ever assume that miraculously a spring is just going to pop up out of nowhere, right? So the Prophet ﷺ, he's sitting there and he's taking this in. The Muslims are able to go and perform their hajj with no, con no concern, no fear, no worry. And subhanAllah, it just sets upon the hearts of the people who are there that we never thought this would happen. We never thought this would happen. Have you guys ever had that moment before? Where you're looking at where you are right now and you're like, there are parts of my life that I literally never thought I would ever, I would be experiencing. I remember my, my dad at my wedding, he gave like the most epic speech. So my dad is like an, uh, the, the master troll, you know, he said, he goes, you know, I don't want to speak very long. He's a man of very few words. And he said, I don't want to speak very long. Uh, he said, but my son Abdurrahman has like stunned me, shocked me. Because my siblings are basically geniuses. Anyone here the least smart person in your family? That's me. I'm definitely the least smart. Like my siblings are geniuses. My brother like aced his standardized tests. My sister, when I got to high school, my sister teachers were like, are you sure you're siblings? I was like, yeah, yeah, we are. Um, so anyways, so my dad at my wedding was so funny. He goes, um, he said, you know, I, I never thought Abdurrahman would accomplish three things, but he did. He said, number one, he actually graduated from, from college, from university on time. And he goes, I never thought he'd do that, but he did it. I was very lazy. And he goes, uh, number two, he goes, I never thought he would find a job right out of school, but he did. And then he goes, number three, Tonight, he's getting married. I never thought he'd get married, but he did. And so he kind of like jokingly finished on that. And he goes, alhamdulillah, like all praises for Allah. He goes, my son was able to accomplish these three things that I was wondering when they would happen for him. And subhanAllah, it's like when you come to that moment, obviously he was joking, I hope. Otherwise, that's kind of sad. But you, when you come to a moment in your own life, man, subhanAllah, I remember, dude, my first job, I made my annual salary was like under $30,000 a year. My wife and I had a one-bedroom apartment, and we shared a Toyota Camry. Which Toyota Camry is a good car. I'm not trying to like throw that on the bus or anything, right? But we shared one, man. I used to drop her off at work, uh, 25 miles away, come home. I used to go to work, and then I would pick her up and then come back. 
And we were living it up, dude. We were getting noodle wave like every other night. There was something about the barakah of that simplicity that was crazy. And now I remember when we first got two cars. Like I remember when I got my own car, I grew up driving a beater Toyota Corolla. Her name was Aziza. I named her that, right? It was a hand-me-down, man. Someone, subhanAllah, it wasn't even my car. Like someone, one of, we have a good friend from, the, from, from, from Jeddah in Saudi Arabia. He came to America to do some medical training. He bought a used car. When he left, you know how Saudis are, man. He just gave it to me. <laughs> he gave it to me. He's like, it's yours. That was a used car, right? So he gave it to me. And we had, to, you know, oil was leaking. We had to fill oil basically every morning. Like the gas station guy knew me. He's like, just buy 10 boxes at a time, man. It was one of those cars, right? And then I remember getting like a new car and I was like, what? Me? Like a new car? I was so used to things that were like hand-me-downs, right? And then that was like, that was like the pinnacle. And then my wife and I were just sharing it, like living it up. And then like a time came where we had to have a conversation like, we need two cars. And I was like, we're going to move to Bel Air? Like what, what's next? Two cars? And we ended up getting another car, Honda Civic. And I was like, oh my God, dude, are you kidding? This is like the Daisy Uncle's dream right now, a Toyota Camry and a Honda Civic in the same parking lot, right? And, and my Camry was gold, by the way. It was really the Daisy Uncle's dream. And I, subhanAllah, and I remember sitting, this has happened multiple times in my life where I just sit there and I'm like, what? Where am I right now? I never thought, I'm sitting here now with two kids that look exactly like me, my poor wife. She has no credit. She takes kids to the grocery store. People think she's the nanny. I'm like, no, that's wrong, man. And I'm like, these are my children. Are you joking? Like what? Like, look at look at how much you're making right now. Like, look at your job. Like, look at where you're at. And you're just like, subhanAllah. There's always a reason to be grateful. It's crazy. You look and, you, and rewind five years ago, 10 years ago. Was it even a possibility that you would be where you are right now? There was a time when where you are right now is truly was a dua that you used to make. You used to beg Allah for where you are right now at some point, right? And subhanAllah, when Allah gives it to us, we like forget and move on. And we move on to the next thing. We complain about them. It's like crazy, subhanAllah. So the Prophet ﷺ, he's sitting there in Mecca making Umrah, surrounded by 250,000 Muslims at a place where they used to drag you in the street and kill you if you were Muslim. And he sits there and he's like, Alhamdulillah. Right? Gratitude. It's, it's the secret of life, man. And he sits there and there's the dua that you make, the dua that you say during Safan Marwa, during Sa'i. La ilaha illallah wahda anjaza wa'da wa nasara abda wa hazman azaba wahda. Where the translation is, you know, there is nothing worthy of worship except for Allah alone. He is the only one that we worship. He is the one who kept his promise to us. And he gave victory to his servant, the Prophet And he was able to, uh, you know, conquer and bring together all these tribes into one, like singularly alone. Dude, if the Prophet ﷺ, 22 years prior to that moment, or, you know, 13 years prior when he was leaving, 10 years prior when he was leaving Mecca, being basically told to leave, his life was threatened to the point where he had to make migration to Medina. If he turned around and told Abu Lahab, Abu, you know, all these people that, you know what, one day we're going to come back and you're not going to believe the Muslims are going to be more welcome here and they're going to be able to pray freely here. You have no idea. Bro, they would have laughed. They would have laughed. And now he's sitting there at that moment. It's so important. It's so important, everybody. 
to pause, to slow down for a second and pause and realize how good Allah has made it. Doesn't mean that your life doesn't have difficulties, by the way. I'm not saying that like, oh, ignore everything that's tough. No, no, no. Just remember that you've always had tough times, but you can't let those tough times erase the presence of the good times that you have. You cannot let that happen. May Allah Ta'ala guide us to gratitude. Ameen, Ya Rabbi. So, he, they were there, they made their Umrah, they made their initial, uh, you know, initial Umrah at the beginning of their Hajj. And the entire Hajj that the Prophet ﷺ did is very detailed. And if we went through the whole thing, it's going to take forever. So I want to just, you know, start or finish, uh, you know, this section with this one point uh, about probably the, the, the climax or the pinnacle point of the Hajj, which is his Khutbah al-Wada'a, his farewell sermon. Now, this isn't the final like sermon that he gave ever, but the reason why it's called Khutbah al-Wada'a is because it was the final sermon he gave to everybody. And it was the it was the farewell sermon of the farewell Hajj. And he gave it on the day of Arafah. So the day of Arafah in Hajj is the entire point of Hajj. It's the entire purpose. There's a hadith, Al-Hajju Arafah, that Hajj is Arafah. Meaning that that day, that ninth day, uh, when you go to Arafah, the valley of Arafah, where there's you know some mountains and some plains and some valleys, that entire day is the day that you are there for. That the day that you traveled for, that you took off work for, that you paid for everything. That's that's the day because that's the day in which there is no day in which more mercy descends from Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. When more prayers are answered, when more people, when when they are then they are salvaged from the hellfire. There's no day in which it is a greater opportunity for Muslims to pray on that day. Obviously, the priority, those people who actually were able and chosen to go there, but that's for all of us, by the way, every year. The day of Arafah is a day that we, uh, we, we fast, we make dua. They don't fast when they're there. We fast if you're not there. And so on that day when you're there, it's so important to make dua that guess what they do? Even if you're a local, you combine dhuhr and asr. You pray dhuhr and asr, you combine it at the time of dhuhr. And there's a brief khutbah that's given, a brief sermon. And then the time from dhuhr until maghrib is like all dua. You see everyone just in their own zone. No one's talking, no one's eating, no one's doing anything. They're just in the zone praying. People bring like booklets. They have duas from themselves, from their family, from their friends. They bring booklets. Many of you have probably submitted a dua form on Google at some point to somebody. Uh, I used to do it actually, but man, it's very... It takes a long time. Everyone's got a lot of du'as and I'm, I need the most help. So I'm like, look, I'm just going to make the, oh Allah, give everyone what they want if it's good for them. I mean, right? And then I'm like, oh Allah, you know me. I got to talk to, I got to talk to you about myself. So interesting is that the Prophet used this opportunity to give his khutbah. But this khutbah was not just a normal khutbah. Because even though the people there didn't know it, the Prophet had an idea and he knew that this was going to be his last chance to address these people. And so he starts with a very powerful example. And this example, it, it, it's something that I think that if we were to remember it, you know, everyone has things hanging up in their home. If we we're to hang this up in our home, it would change our experience with family, with friends, with faith. He says to the people there, he says that is... The day that we are in right now, he asks them. He begins, obviously, begins khutbah. Then he asks the audience. 
He says, is the day that we are on right now, this day of Arafah, is it sacred? Is it sacred? And everybody says, yes, of course. You know, it's a rhetorical question, but their answer, yes, of course. The Prophet says, okay, is this month, Dhul Hijjah, is it a special month? Is it a sacred month? Everyone says, yes, of course. He goes, this city of Mecca, is it a special place? Is it a sacred place? And everybody responds, of course, overwhelmingly, right? There's consensus. Not a single person in that audience says, ah, I don't know, you know, like Arafah, Dhul Hijjah, Mecca. It's still up for, you know, no, everybody unanimously says this place, this day, this month, super important. So the Prophet Sallallahu he says, Inna dima'akum wa amwalakum wa a'radakum haramun alaykum. He says, Kahurmati yomikum hadha fi shahrikum hadha wa fi baladikum hadha. He says, just like all of you just verbally acknowledged that this day and this month and this place are sacred, that you would never do anything to mess it up or to disrespect it or to treat it less than it deserved. He said, all of you, your lives, dima'akum means your blood literally, but your lives, your wealth, your property, amwalakum wa'aradakum, and your honor, your dignity is sacred just like you treat this stuff as sacred. He's telling the Muslims like how you treat each other matters. Because he knows that this is the last time he's gonna be able to talk to everybody. And it's very easy for everybody to respect symbols of sanctity while we, what? Disrespect the people around us, subhanAllah. The Prophet one time he was looking at the Kaaba and he said to the Kaaba, he said that in the sight of Allah, the honor of a Muslim is more important to Allah than even you. Talking to the Kaaba. Crazy, huh? How many people have we backbit? How many Muslims have we made feel less Muslim because of something? The way that they dress, talk, whatever. How many, how many times have we ever been a person that just, when we walk into the room, like we... We take people's light away from them, as opposed to the opposite. You know, the Prophet ﷺ was able to find good in anybody, anybody. I mean, you give him the worst person, he'll find something good about him. And I feel like today it's, it's almost it's almost trendy that if, if you find the best person, it's you got to find something negative about them. Somehow it makes you feel better. I don't know. Like, may Allah help us. Like, this is a, it's not, and I'm not talking to you, I'm saying us. Like, this is something that I noticed. And I'm sure y'all have noticed it too. The Prophet met highway robbers. He met highway robbers, people who literally their occupation is stop travelers and stick them up and steal all their wealth. And they told the Prophet when they met him and they talked to him, <laughs> they, were trying to, they were trying to rob him. <laughs> and he basically said, no, you're not going to rob me. And then he said, Man entuma, who are you? Like, tell me about yourself. And they said, like, we, are, we are disgraceful people. They basically had a moment of like truth, of realization, like we're horrible. We, we're too embarrassed to tell you what we are, right? Like imagine meeting somebody and they're just really, really, and, and you're like, hey, what do you do for work? And they don't want to tell you, you know, I deal or I do this. No, no one wants to say it's it's disgraceful. So they say that to the Prophet, and he says, no, you are noble people. You guys are honored. I can see it in you. You're, you have dignity. But... 
you have to just take this one thing away. This thing that you do, you have to take it away. The Prophet was amazing at being able to tell somebody your livelihood is just something small about you. Just, just work on that. But you have so much good in you. SubhanAllah. What kind of heart would develop if we could hear that? If I could hear that, right? I only prayed two times today. You prayed two times today? How many times did you pray yesterday? I didn't pray yesterday. You prayed twice today? You didn't pray yesterday? That's amazing. Twice? Okay. You missed three? Make those up. Tomorrow, let's do three out of five. Do four out of five. But you you didn't pray any yesterday? Allahu Akbar. I remember one time I met, a, I, I, there was a father that came to me. He said, make my son pray. I asked, the, you know, I told the, I was like, it's not how that works. But anyways, I told him, I was like, I looked at the kid and uh, I said, how many times did you pray? How many times did you pray? He said, none. I go, okay. It wasn't like a DJ Khaled thing. I pray all the time, actually. I pray all the time. I'm like, okay. Uh, <laughs> so he goes, he goes, I don't pray. This is a kid, man. He's like 14. I was just being honest. And his dad's like, don't tell him that. At least say you pray a couple times. I'm like, no, like that's not going to help, man. So the kid's like, I don't pray at all. I told the guy, I said, look, tomorrow, can I ask you something? So what's the easiest prayer for you to pray? What's the easiest prayer for you to pray? He was like, Isha, Maghrib. I said, okay, just do that one. Just do that. He's like, what if I want to do another? I was like, don't, Mr. Rebel. Now you want to pray all five, Tahajjud two? What if I want to do more? I'm like, don't. Just do one. And he's like, why? And the dad was furious. I'm, I can remember. This is when I was a youth director. This is like 10 years ago. The dad was furious. Like, what kind of horrible imam are you? You're the worst, like shaitan and a kufi. Like, you're ruining my son. And I remember telling the dad, I said, look, if you looked at the seerah of the Prophet ﷺ, first of all, five prayers was not ordained all at once. Okay? So there's, there's a way that we adopt as Muslims this gradualism. Now, again, we don't use it as a cop-out. Like, I can give my zakat, but let me just give half this year. No, no, no. If you can do it, do it. If you can fast, fast. If you can pray, pray. But if it's something that's like, you know, you know the difference between something you can do and something you're really struggling to do. You know the difference. And that's the scary part is that you and Allah know, right? So no one else can give you permission. Like, it's between you and Allah. But I told this kid, if you're not praying at all, pray once a day. And he started. And then by like three months later, mashallah, the kid was praying like four or five times a day. You know what I mean? Like, that's amazing. So I, I share that because that's how that's how we were taught. And that's how hopefully if you find prayer to be a struggle, like get yourself on that on that game plan. Right. That's how the Prophet Muhammad, that's how he was. But I find it beautiful that he begins his final message to the ummah at this incredible moment to remind everybody that, look, you're in a very overwhelming time right now, in a very overwhelming place, in a very overwhelming month, the day of Arafah and Hajj in Mecca. But don't forget that when you go back, Ahmed and Fatima and Zainab and, and Muhammad and Khalid and all these people, they deserve your respect and love, just like you felt this respect and love here. They deserve it, just like you felt it here. He taught us that. He, the, the khutbah actually was quite long. We don't have a lot of time. The khutbah was quite long. And every... You know, he mentions a lot of different things. He talks about some of the specifics. He talks about, you know, justice. He talks about uh, treating treating the, the those who are vulnerable in society because of their treatment at the time. Uh, women, children, the elderly, treating them well, right? Making sure that you protect them, that you honor them. So all these com conversations, they come up. Um, 
and he talks about not stealing from the orphans and not uh, in, in doing injustice to anybody. And every time he gives the community and these people, every time he delivers this message, uh, he, at the end, he, answered, he en uh, ends his passage by saying, have I delivered the message? Right? Have I delivered? And they always they, they all respond by saying, Bala ya Rasulullah, yes, you've delivered it. And then he says, Allah fashhad, oh Allah witness. And the scholars of Sira, they say, look at these little signs he's giving. Like, when would somebody say this? They're not going to say it if they're going to come back next year and say the same thing. These are all signs that the Prophet is giving that, look, this is my, this is the completion of my job. It's done now. Like, I'm asking you, have I taught you? Are you, are, do you, do you know what I've taught you? And they're saying, yes, yes, yes. And he's saying, oh, Allah, witness this. I've done the job. I've complete 23 years in, ya, ya Allah, I've done my job. Right? And only a couple of the people that are there, only a couple of the people that are there, they recognize what this means. Umar ibn Khattab is one of them. Umar, he starts to cry. Because the Prophet ﷺ, at the end of his khutbah, he tells everybody the ayah in which Allah Ta'ala says that on this day we have perfected your religion for you. We've perfected it, we've completed it. All right? That we've we've perfected your religion. It's, it's complete now. It's in its whole package. And Omar he starts to cry and he says, Nothing follows perfection except for imperfection. Which means what? This is the end of his life soon. And then the Prophet ﷺ, he says, he recites, Many of us recite that surah because it's short, right? Bro, that is one of the heaviest surahs in the world. I'm gonna tell you something, it's gonna change every time you ever hear recite that surah. The Prophet ﷺ, he recited it because he was sent down the victory. When the when the victory and the uh, when the victory and the, and the and the win from Allah, the opening from Allah comes to you. You're gonna see droves and waves of people entering the religion in like massive units and massive groups. Praise and glorify. Uh, your Lord and seek his forgiveness, right? He is the one who is the oft repenting and the oft turning that he will forgive you. When he said this, when he recited this surah, Abu Bakr started to cry. And Abu Bakr realized that this was a sign, Abdullah bin Masood and other, they realized that this is the end. That this surah has just kind of like, it has a vibe of finality to it. And these were some of the closest friends of the Prophet Muhammad so they began to understand, they began to understand this. One of the other interesting things that I'll share with you, inshallah, is that the person, some of you might be wondering, how did the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam speak to 200,000 people? There was no microphone back then. You guys have ever prayed in a large gathering before Allah Akbar is repeated, you know, multiple times to kind of almost like a human microphone. The person that was the designated uh, amplifier of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was none other than a man named Rabi'a ibn Umayyah ibn Khalaf. Who was Umayyah ibn Khalaf? You guys remember Bilal, عن, the, the, the former slave who was tortured with the boulder in his chest? You know who the slave master was? Umayyah ibn Khalaf. Umayyah ibn Khalaf's son. This is crazy, man. This man, Umayyah ibn Khalaf, was one of the most outspoken, aggressive enemies of the Prophet And what did his son become? His son became literally the amplifier of the final khutbah. In Islam, we're taught a very powerful lesson. Who you are has nothing to do with where you came from, has nothing to do with who you were born to, for better or for worse. 
You know, I wish that who I was was because of my mom. My mom is like the hedge of champion, right? She's like the most pious person I've ever met. I wish I inherited that, but no, nobody inherits from anybody else, good or bad. It's all you. It's just you and Allah on the day of judgment. And that's for better or for worse. You look back at the people in your lineage and maybe those people weren't the greatest role models, right? Maybe they had some flaws. Everybody does, by the way, everyone's parents have flaws. We still respect them, but they have flaws. That doesn't limit you in any way in terms of your closeness to Allah, right? Likewise, you look back on your lineage, your family, and you see people that were great scholars, great pious people. Everyone has a grandmother that finishes the Quran every month, right? You have that in your life, maybe. It also doesn't give you any distinct advantage over anybody else. Everybody is who they are. And where you are is, has nothing to do with where you've come from. It's who you want to be. Rabi'a ibn ibn Khalaf, that story shakes me every single time, subhanAllah. The Prophet he finishes khutbah by saying that shaitan has given up any hopes of you worshipping other than Allah, especially in this land, right? The land of Tawheed, because of course the Kaaba is there, Medina is there, not Saudi, but talking about two cities, not the country. Just want to clarify. Okay. He says, however, he is trying to corrupt you in trivial matters. Shaitan doesn't really try to get at you with big things. He's not going to come up to you one day and say, hey, you should just worship something else. He will come to you in what's called khutawat, these footsteps, right? And he says that shaitan is going to try to corrupt you in your faith by small things. Maybe it's a little bit of negligence there, a little bit of an allowance there, a little bit of, you know, here and there. Because that's how shaitan's game plan works. And then he says, what? He says, Taraktu fikum amrain. I gave you two things that will protect you from his game plan. Shaitan has his game plan. I gave you two things. Taraktu fikum amrain. Len tudillu men tamasaktum bihima. The person who hangs on, like with their like molars, like they're just clenched onto this. They're never going to let it go. It doesn't matter what shakes them. They're never going to be misguided by shaitan ever. What are those two things? He says, Kitab Allah wa sunnat nabihi. The book of Allah and the example of his messenger. Nothing will ever corrupt you if these two things mean more to you than anything else. Doesn't matter again, like I said, a lot of the things that we struggle with. Where's your heart when it comes to the Quran? I find myself sometimes listening to podcasts over and over and over again. I'm like, man, this podcast is so good. And then Spotify is like, have you listened to Quran lately? I'm like, wow, Spotify. Is my mom the CEO of Spotify? Like, you know, it reminds me, like, because again, it's in my algorithm. Have you listened to Muhammad's Deacon Minshawi? I'm like, dang. And I and I tell myself, you know, I'm sitting here listening to historians and people, and this that's great. It's great to learn, right? It's awesome to be informed. But especially news, man, does news really change? Like in 24 hours. You can put your phone away for 24 hours, and I guarantee you that the headlines at 8 a.m. or the headlines at 8 p.m. But how many times do we check it over and over and over and over again? Meanwhile, we haven't engaged even with an ayah in the day. One ayah, one verse, just listening to it. The Quran is beautiful, man. It's amazing. And so check your connection with the Quran, with the Son of the Prophet. Why? Every day you have a connection. You've guaranteed yourself that day. Shaitan's not going to get me today, right? Not today, Satan, right? Like, just give yourself that guarantee. Give yourself that feeling. 
you know, people, I know people who work out first thing in the morning. Why? Because they're like, because then I can kind of eat whatever I want later. I don't have to feel like, oh man, I got to work out tonight at 11 so I can get back on track. No, they just get it over with. So for me, I always tell people, look, if you want to kind of have a good start to your day, where are you driving? Where are you, what are you doing? Making breakfast, eating, whatever. Just put some Quran on. It's on Spotify. There's no excuse, by the way. Just put some Quran on. Get that into your day. And then you'll notice, hey, you know what? That's my nutrition. That's my spiritual nutrients for that day. Shaitan's not going to get me today. And you'll find that time will increase slowly and slowly and slowly. Now, the Prophet Muhammad, he again gave all these indications of his of his conclusion, of his ending and his his life ending. Um, there were some others that were also there as well that are mentioned in the books of Sirah. Uh, you know, every year he used to recite the Quran once with the angel Jibreel. He used to review the Quran that had been revealed until that point. This year he had, he had reviewed it twice. Every year he did 10 days Artikaf in the Masjid Ramadan. This year he did 20. Um, so this, there was kind of a lot of indication that this was sort of the final moment of the life of the Prophet Muhammad Now, after this pilgrimage, the Prophet Muhammad he went back to Medina. And, and again, remember, this kind of this is kind of like a victory that the Prophet is experiencing. And the Prophet goes back to Medina. And you, you, you're used to seeing like when somebody wins, when somebody is victorious, that they kind of start to what? They kind of start to take the, the foot off the pedal a little bit. Uh, you know, they might even like, you know, in football, they'll put on the backups. Like they just kind of sort of slow down. They, they've done their job. The Prophet here has completed ostensibly what his task is. But when he goes back to Medina, he doesn't really take his foot off of the gas, so to speak. He kind of still checks in on people. He makes sure everyone's okay. He's answering people's questions. He doesn't kind of like just give in. He, he still does his role as long as he's there. And this is the definition of ihsan, to do something to its ultimate beauty, right? As Muslims, especially in the professional space, we have a duty not to our employers, but to Allah to never ever do anything less than what we can do. And that includes things that might be norm normative, like taking long lunches or like not doing the work that we can that day or whatever. There are things that maybe you can assign to yourself, get, get done on your own time, that's fine. But you know and I know when we're cheating the system, right? Like we know when we're like, I, I used to have a, I used to work downtown Chicago and I had a colleague that used to come and clock in and then go find a parking spot in Chicago. It would literally take 45 minutes, right? And if you're from Chicago, you know what I'm talking about. Like it would take forever. And that's what he would do. And he would come in and be like one hour off the clock. I always see people like, oh yeah, I'm going to go to the bathroom. How long? I don't know. Just, you know, I'm clocked in already. So, and I'd be like, man, subhanAllah, my mother, man, subhanAllah, she always drilled this in. Every penny you earn, Allah will ask you about it. Every single penny, every morsel of, of food that you feed yourself in, was that halal? Forget about the slaughter method. You know, if you're part of the Dallas halal food group or whatever that is, everyone's going crazy, right? But no one, and again, I don't want to start this conversation there because it'll be, it'll just be like adding gasoline to a fire. But are we as concerned about the money that we've earned as we are about the method in which the animal was slaughtered? Both are important, but are we concerned? We have to be. Imam al-Ghazali, he actually used to talk about this. Haram food, he said it's haram before the animals even ever killed because it was bought with money that was stolen, right? And this is a huge, huge like move now in HRs and companies worldwide talking about what? Like stealing company time. 
And so this is something that as Muslims, the Prophet ﷺ demonstrated till the end of his life, man, till the very end. We're going to talk about the fever that he developed, the sickness that he developed, and he still tried to make it to the masjid to lead prayer until he collapsed. I mean, that is ihsan. And it's for you and Allah, it's not for anybody else, but one of the fruits of it is that people, when they see ihsan, because ihsan in Arabic literally comes from the word beauty, they recognize your beauty. And they see what an incredible person you are, right? And they attribute that to none other than your relationship with God. So I, I always tell people, you want to conquer Islamophobia? Just do your best. People will have no choice but to acknowledge the beauty that's being inspired from the faith that's in your heart. They'll have no choice. We ask Allah Ta'ala to make us people of beauty. We ask Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala to make us people that are dedicated to the life of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, that we're never misguided because we hang on to the Qur'an in his way. We ask Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala to protect us from any of our mis, uh, misfortunes or shortcomings or any of the mistakes that we make. We ask Allah Ta'ala to pardon us for those. We ask Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala to allow us to come out of every night and every morning uh, renewed with a renewed sense of faith. We ask Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala to allow our hearts to feel our faith and to allow us to come close to him and to respect and to love and to admire the Prophet Muhammad in a way that allows us to come closer to his example and to be better people. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to bless everybody here, bless everybody watching and listening. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to protect everybody's income and wealth and to protect and bless what they are earning and make it a, a, a pure source and means for them. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to not test us with anything more than we can bear. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to protect everybody's health and the health of their loved ones and their friends and the community and the world. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to grant us safety and security and to make us people of the book in our right hands. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make the best of our days the last of our days. Amin ya Rabbil Alameen wa sallallahumma ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ismain. Jazakumullah khair everybody. Um, we are going to politely request as numbers are exponentially increasing. Uh, I know it's cold outside. But if anybody here does want to catch up with somebody, you know, bump elbows. Uh, we do have dinner that we're serving on your way out, but we're going to kindly ask, inshallah, just to sort of have the mitigation be as good as it can here, that we don't have any congregation here after. As much as I would love to, and if you know, if you know Roots, you know that this announcement kills me because this is the vibe that we go for. But I'd rather have you leave early and be safe and your loved ones safe than be here and risk yourself or risk anybody else for whatever reason. So we ask Allah Ta'ala to protect everybody. There is a patio right there. If you want to speak outside with somebody, it's better, it's safer, uh, you know, statistically proven. So if you want to catch up quickly, I know it's cold and I apologize. Please don't allow any of this to fall on roots. This is just my concern, my caution that I'd like to share with you guys, inshallah. I hope you can understand. Jazakumullah khairan. Wassalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Oh, I'm sorry. I also have one more announcement. Giving Tuesdays tomorrow. We have a goal of 100 people signing up for $10 a month. I would love to have that goal met, inshallah, for our operations. 100 people sign up for 10 bucks a month, inshallah. You can check uh, rootsdfw.org slash sustain. If you already give, jazakum al khairan, maybe you give $10 more. All right, jazakum al khairan, guys. Take care, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum.